0: The pivot is real. I say all the time, it will come in some form. You're going to either be replaced or you're going to lose the job. Someone's going to you know, hopscotch over you. I always tell people in business, you're going to quit them or they're going to quit you. Are you ready? You can't be afraid of losing it. Be afraid of not being prepared to lose it.
1: Hey, everyone, it's Carly. My guest today is Tamron Hall. She is an award-winning journalist who has been on TV for decades. Tamron co-hosted the third hour of the Today Show and Today's Take for three years and anchored MSNBC Live with Tamron Hall. Now she is the host and executive producer of her own nationally syndicated talk show. Tamron, I'm so excited to have you join me on the couch, or the virtual couch, I should say. Welcome to Skim from the Couch.
0: Ah, well, thank you for having me on your couch. It's lovely. It's quite cozy. For some reason, it feels like I'm in the closet at my home, but I feel like I'm in your room on your sofa, and it's quite cozy. Thank
1: you. Uh, Well, I'm so excited to have you. First, would just love for you to skim your resume.
0: Well, for me, it started a very important moment in my life, age 14, when I got my first job at Toys R Us. I was underage and convinced my father, who was in the military, to let me apply. I worked there for about four months, and I elevated my game to Sears and Roebuck in the mall. And I guess the version of my life that you know now started in 1992 as a journalist at KBTX, a CBS affiliate in Bryan College Station, where I was there less than a year after fudging my way or lying and pretending to be sick and got an interview at KTVT, a CBS station, where I was a reporter for four years covering various things that general assignment reporters do. I then landed a job at the Fox affiliate in Chicago, where I worked for 10 years and found my way to New York at MSNBC and NBC for another 10 years. And currently, I'm in my second season as the host of a daytime talk show that happens to bear my name, Tamron Hall.
1: How cool is that, that it bears your name? Does that ever get old?
0: No, it doesn't get old. It is surreal at times. At other times, it represents a challenge that my prior work life never prepared me for, but it's one I enjoy.
1: What is something that people would be really
0: surprised to know about you? Surprised to know about me? I think I wear my feelings on my sleeve, particularly in my daytime talk show. So I would love to say, oh, I cry a lot, but I think people know that from watching the show. I'd love to say, oh, I have a pretty sizable shoe collection, but I think they can tell that from the moment I walk out on stage. Maybe I think the I don't watch myself on television often and I don't listen to interviews of myself. When I watch myself on TV, I just see my big eyes and teeth. I feel like I look like a puppet. In radio interviews, much or podcasts like this, I feel like I, I sound very Southern and, I don't know, kind of goofy. So I'm probably, I put on a good front, but I, I think they'd be surprised at how goofy I feel that I am.
1: Yeah, I would never guess that. You do not sound goofy. But you did mention the South, so it's a good transition. You grew up in a small town in Texas. What was your family dynamic like growing up?
0: My mother was a single parent at the age of 19. She was in her freshman year at a HBCU, which is in the zeitgeist with Kamala Harris. And basically she went to a historic black college called Paul Quinn. She um, met a guy and fell in love and she came home with a baby. My grandfather, who was born in 1901, was the first father figure in my life, uh, stable father figure, I should say, in my life. It was a beautiful childhood. I, I grew up pretty fearless, pretty uh, much encouraged to do things and take on things. I was not a big fan of hanging out with children because I was picked on a lot because I was an only child, which was rare. Many of my cousins and friends in our neighborhoods had siblings. And when you have a sibling, that is, your you have a built-in tribe. And I was one of a few kids who uh, were only children in this area. And I quite enjoyed hanging out with my grandfather and the older people on the street. And so I had this interesting childhood that was very nostalgic in many ways of what America looked like at that time, but also very forward, because here I had this independent 19-year-old single mom who was, you know, you can do bad by yourself. You don't need a man who is going to control your life. You control your life, so let's get in this car and we're gonna leave and we're going together as best friends, as strange as that sounds, to have your daughter be your best friend. It was fantastic. And there I watched her work multiple jobs, and put me in a Catholic school to get the best education and just kind of live this very modern life that we see talked about, particularly in politics, because this propels someone like a Kamala Harris to where she is, that kind of mom. How old were you when you realized you wanted to be a journalist? I don't know the age. I can tell you that growing up, that I loved interviewing people. I was always very curious. My nickname, and it wasn't meant as a compliment, was not necessarily... One of my family members uh, had a neighbor who was an older woman and I everything that someone said, I thought, or said out loud, not necessarily. So you can imagine being a seven-year-old saying not necessarily. So I was very contrary and got in a lot of trouble for being sassy. Early on, I, I remember wanting to do what Johnny Carson did. So I knew that I wanted to talk to people or with people. And I also knew that I enjoyed hearing and questioning things. So I, I think I would say to you, Carly, my whole life. As
1: you started to move from, you know, smaller local markets to the bigger local markets to eventually to New York, what did you tap into that you knew like this is what I'm best at? How did you identify what that was?
0: I don't think I identified with it as much as, and this may sound strange to some people or unrealistic in, in other ways, but it was a calling. So for me, until I lost a job later in my career, I had a motto, get me in the room, I was going to get that job, or get me in front of that person, I was going to get that interview. It just always seemed very natural and effortless for me.
1: I wanna talk about like that phrase of, of feeling like you have a calling. I personally like know what that feels like. Cause I felt that with the skip. but I also felt the opposite when I was, you know, at times I'd taken a job and I knew it was the wrong one and I didn't give it a shot. And I quit in literally 24 hours. And I think that millennials in particular, there's a lot of negative perception fairly or unfairly around, um, if they don't feel like pleased in a job, not having the patience to to stick it out. And so what is your advice for when something doesn't feel like it is your calling, how to have perspective around it?
0: For me, I think it is unfair to give anyone that kind of life advice. I can tell someone right now every single step I made to get to this point and they could follow it letter for letter and it not work out the same. I think some jobs are worth quitting immediately. I think others are worth sticking it out. And I know that sounds like a pivot, and it is simply not. I think you know. I remember in my role as a reporter in Dallas-Fort Worth, I started out as the evening reporter. And a new assistant director was hired who just instantly, for whatever reason, did not like me. And she shifted me to the early morning a.m. reporting gig, which means you wake up at 3.15. A couple of things emotionally were going through my mind. How could another woman? You know, Women are supposed to rally for women, you know? So that went out the window and probably left me a bit bitter. Now I'm on the 3 a.m. I live in an apartment, not making a lot of money. I don't have any, you know, gated community, and I'm terrified running to my car every morning to drive to work. As it turned out, the... Best of this journey, I learned in many ways in that role. At 3 a.m., you are covering fires, overnight murders, and state fairs that have not opened yet. How do you talk to a crowd of people that have yet to arrive? So you learn to razzle-dazzle. You learn to use props. You learn to talk to people at home because there's nobody at the state fair at 3 a.m. to talk to. I learned the importance of compassion when I'm knocking on someone's door at 5 a.m. who just got word from the police that their kid was involved in a shooting, because this was right around the time that gang violence had you know skyrocketed in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, the Crips and Bloods, all of that storyline. I learned that I was knocking on the door of a human being, not a story. Or, you know, three in the morning and someone's house is burned in the middle of the night because someone left a candle on, and they're standing out draped in a blanket, and I am approaching them with my cameraman asking about the fire. That was worth sticking it out for. Did I know that each and every day? No. Did I want to quit many of those days? Yes. But I didn't. And that experience greatly helped me where I am now which is this talk show where I'm trained now as a human, but as a reporter, as an interviewer, to not forget I am talking with someone and not to them. And had I given up after being demoted to the dark 30 shift and demoralized by a woman in this business in an executive position, I wouldn't be here. With that said, there have been other experiences where I have said, it's time to go for various reasons.
1: So we're gonna talk about one of those. You're an anchor on the Today Show and then you weren't an anchor on the Today Show. What
0: happened? Oh, well, it's a very long story, but in short, I was made an offer to stay in a way that was all but certain to end my career, meaning I was being replaced. The show was being handed off to someone else And I was basically told I didn't have a role, but I could stay until they figured something out. At that time, I was 47 years old. I had, the week prior, hosted all three hours of the Today Show, ran across the street to the MSNBC studio, hosted a live hour of MSNBC news, ran home, walked my dog, and came back and filled in for Lester Holt, something no one had ever done. And that's not to pat myself on the back. I just thought, wow, my hard work is paying off. I am in these spaces because I've earned it and they see it. And quickly, that was not the case. Or at least they saw a greater value in someone or something else, which for me was not how I wanted my story to end. How did
1: you kind of
0: digest this experience?
1: I know firsthand, Danielle, too, like being in that building, what that role could mean. And, you know, I used to, as an intern, like watch you walk down the halls. I can only imagine what that must have felt like. How did you just digest like what was happening? To your point, the week prior, you were doing three huge jobs in one day, which was obviously an indication of, you know, what you were able to do and and what you had work to do. What just emotionally went through your head?
0: Well, I'll be honest with you. I am my backup plan. I don't have parents who were able to have, you know, pad money for me. Yes, I've been successful. You know, my first big contract, I got at age 27 to anchor. But as you know, as we talk about pay inequality, it exists in our industry as well. It's difficult to talk about because everyone assumes, well, they're making money. How are you going to complain, you know, one million versus two versus this? But- Men in this industry, whether it's in print or television, radio, make a lot more money in most cases than their female counterparts. So I had not stashed or amassed a lot of money in the bank that would get me through the next 40 years of my life. Every man that I've anchored with made more money than me. Every male reporter that I worked alongside where it was parody made more money than me there were male anchors brought in 10 years after me who could not do the job that I did, who made substantially more money than me. And again, none of this really registered to me at the time. You kind of fall in line, even in our industry, you fall in line and I did. But at that moment, the first thing I thought was, I'm a black woman with no backup plan. I don't have time to feel sorry for myself. I can't take a sabbatical. I can't you know, relax and run off for a second. I've got to figure this out. And how am I going to figure it out also as a woman who's 47, not a woman who's 37? As a consumer of the news cycle at this time,
1: what was very obvious to me without knowing any of the inside details and not knowing you personally in that that capacity was that you were very much publicly taking a stand of like, I know my worth. And that w- it was very obvious, um, like as a woman in the news industry, that you weren't going to settle for something that didn't validate your worth. I've been preparing for the show. I was reading, I came across something where you said you've been able to get through hard times by looking in the mirror and imagining your seven-year-old self.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Connect the dots for me there around knowing your worth and what a seven-year-old Tamron Hall looks like or thought.
0: A seven-year-old Tamron Hall doesn't know the worth as we define it. But when I looked at myself through the prism of seven-year-old Tamron Hall, it told me you have to try every and anything. What do you have to lose at this point? Someone has taken something you think is of value. And so for me at age seven, I was not the kid that people bet on. You know, I'm not, I'm the daughter of a single mom. I was not an A student. I'm not a legacy student. My mother did not graduate from college. My biological father was not in my life. There was nothing exceptional about me. But at the same time, I was told that I was exceptional by the people who raised me. So I looked in the mirror and saw someone that wasn't on the outside exceptional, but had been fed a steady diet from my mother and my grandfather and my aunts and uncles that there was something exceptional about me. So I looked in the mirror and I saw a woman who looked very much like probably every other anchor on TV for the last 25 years. But what was exceptional about me was that I had been on four different networks, seven different shows all within 10 years and all very different, and so there I was on Deadline Crime, covering you know these stories, emotional stories, and I had fans from that show. I'm on MSNBC, a whole different fan group. The Today Show, whole, and then I'm out in the wild with bear grills falling out of the sky, you know, going on a nature hike, and everywhere I would go, different types of people would say, "I love you." On yeah, you know, I'll give you an example. I'm in Best Buy. My mother lives in the reddest part of a red state, would not watch MSNBC. They would throw the TV out the window before watching MSNBC. I am walking in Best Buy and this man, like, I mean, Central Cast, Texas guy. He's like, oh, I love that crime show. And I'm like, oh, wow, I've made it in Burleson, Texas, you know? And that's quite the contrast to you know, the different people around that were watching all of the programs. So as I was looking at myself, I was the D-list player on the Today Show, clearly, which is why somebody decided to make a change. And I said, okay, I know I'm not that. I know that because I've been told there's something exceptional about me. And there's no reason for me to believe that seven different shows on four different networks and all of these people were coming up to me why do I believe they're wrong and the person who fired me, do I believe he's right? Obviously,
1: your circumstance is unique because most people are not on television. <laughs> so for somebody listening who has gone through their version of this where they were not deemed the best at work and they were, felt like they were being treated as like the D-list player and they don't necessarily get that outside validation, what would your advice be around
0: how to pick themselves up? The first thing I did was acknowledge the hard part of it. Acknowledge, I don't call it fear, but the reality that the money in the bank, whatever you have, if it's a dollar, a hundred or two thousand, it's not gonna last forever. But you have to know that can't be the motivating factor for the next part. It's real. Don't I know the difference in being able to pay my bills and not. And trust me, it feels a lot better to be able to pay them. So I'm not gonna put that fantasy out there. Don't look at you. So you have that. But I think for me, honestly there was a moment of acknowledgement of the hurt, of the embarrassment, of the unfairness of it all. And I think so often, especially as women, we kind of, I'm not going to give in to the, you know, that the bitterness and all these things. Yes, absolutely. And I didn't give in to bitterness because I think that's a different sensation. I did, though, give in to the feeling of being wronged. And I think that that's something we experience in relationships in friendships that we want to run from. We don't want to acknowledge that, you know what, sometimes you will be wrong, it will happen. And I gave into it because I didn't, I was tired, honestly, of always being the tough one, always being resilient, always having to, you know, muscle up and and, and carry the weight of that. You know, sometimes that that is a burden. And I think it's one we as women fall into. You know, you have to buckle up, you know, put your big girl pants on, someone said to me. I was not. I wanted to be in my pajamas. I didn't want to be in my big girl pants. And I was okay with that. I just promised myself it wasn't going to last long. And what I tell people when you're going through this loss of, especially job, because it's your identity. And I, I was given a book when I was 18 years old. And it's called The Path of Light. And I never knew the book would have become of value that it is in my life today when I got it from a friend's mother who's all into self-help, actually. She's like a hippie and she loves self-help. She's always, for Christmas, giving me a self-help book. She gave me this book and it said, who are you when there's nothing beneath your name on your business card? So picture life with a blank business card and just your name on that card. What does that say to you? Does it say you're no one? Does it say you're blank? Or does it say there is room now for you to put what you want? And that's what I kept telling myself. In 2017, you left NBC
1: and you struck a deal with the Weinstein Company. And then we all know what
0: happened with Harvey Weinstein. What was just your reaction when that news came out? My first reaction was one of the few times that I was afraid. And it wasn't because of a job or the deal. It was realizing that I had been in the room with Evil. My sister was murdered. The person who murdered her was a person of interest but never charged. I think back to having sat at the dinner table with him. One of the last pictures I have with my sister, we actually went out to a a bar with that person of interest as um, declared by the police at the time. And so when I realized that the Harvey Weinstein story was not, and I don't want to say simply, because early on there was like, was he harassing people? Because we're used to like these sexual harassment stories. When it became allegations of rape and the allegations were substantive and documented. And I had a moment of fear that I had never been alone with him, but that you're just in the presence of evil because an evil person does that. Um, so that was my first reaction. I then felt guilt because... I then thought, oh, are you kidding me? I just got this deal. We're pitching this show. We'd been in meetings. I felt guilty for thinking about the job, knowing that there were women who had been hiding, um, for understandable reasons, these painful secrets. And now I'm thinking about a TV show, and they are somewhere, you know, being comforted by friends, hopefully, or maybe even in therapy, you know, as the media is hunting them down for more details. So I felt guilt um, for even thinking about the show. And then I felt um, after receiving a phone call from a journalist who called me about it, and I refused to talk to the person, not because I had any allegiance to Harvey Weinstein, in any way, shape, or form, I refused to talk because I was not going to allow a man to define my journey. I had known him three months. And by the way, if I had known him 33 years, I have had grown frustrated with women having to answer for the actions of men. I've covered the story many times, which is interesting, that I ended up interviewing Andrew Gillum and his wife, RJ, the political star who was caught in this scandal, I interviewed them as the premiere episode of Zara season two. And I approached that, and we could discuss that later in a certain way because I feel like, why does that have to be a part of my story? Why do I have to explain how I know him, who I know, what, you know, any of that? And that's not to skirt past it, it's just yet again the world letting a man and his actions define a woman. And I was not going to be that woman. So I became defiant. I became even more determined to create this show, to get it on air without it being linked to anyone other than me. So
1: you did that. Your name is is on the show. You got literally the Disney ending here. What has it been like to be the one in charge now?
0: Far more difficult than I ever imagined and far more exhilarating than I could have scripted. I've always worked for a network since being in this business. And there were just things that I could never have imagined. I mean, we made, at the end of season one, personnel changes um, that I'd hoped would improve the show and that I would hope um, would bring my view and vision of the show more to the front. Because, you know, the first season I'm still very proud of, it wasn't me, you know, completely. Yes, it was me and you think, okay, it's your name on the show, but when you're new, a lot of opinions come in. You as a woman, and I, I relate everything to being a woman because I am a woman, you know, you kind of think, okay, I don't want to be too bossy, even though it's my name on the show, and even though I pitched it, I don't want people to think that I'm trying to control it. And you know, And so I kind of let go more than I was comfortable with. I didn't want a hot topic kind of show I didn't want a show that kind of was like, oh, here's what's buzzing in the news. That's just not my passion. And it's okay, and it makes for great TV when it's your thing. It's not my thing. And I was introduced to Candy Carter, my current executive producer, who had worked for The Oprah Winfrey Show for years from the beginning to the end of that show. She'd gone on to co-executive produce The View. She was introduced to me by some mutual friends. And we both passionately hit it off when it came to storytelling, when it came to the opportunity to talk to people about their journey, much like what you're doing. And I felt myself again. And so that was surprising to me that, you know, here I I had a specific show in mind and then it kind of goes a different way and then we have to curve curve. I didn't expect that because you think, okay, this is what I presented on paper and how did it become something else? That was a learning curve in really staying centered, staying centered to the plan. The plan can move, and don't get me wrong, every day I'm trying to be a better interviewer. I'm trying to be a better executive producer, which I am on that show, and all of these things. But the core of what the universe conspired for me to create, I can't let go. That was surprising. And also, you know, really being a leader, understanding a lot of my staff For them, this is their first journey. And I have to remind myself what I felt like at 25 and 27 and 28. And I recently told the team, I'd given some feedback to a producer and I said, look, we're going to leave ego to the side because guess what? If I don't know more than you at age 50 and I've been doing this for 30 years, I suck. And she started laughing. And that was my way of saying, you know, I'm not giving you this feedback because you are doing something wrong. I just hope that the 30 years of experience that I have and that the show is from my point of view, that I happen to know myself a little better than this individual, that we can merge. My friend Prince used to talk about there are energy vampires, he would refer to them as, and people who just suck out your energy, they suck out your creativity. And I know how that feels. I've been in the presence of energy vampires. And I don't want to be that for the young millennials on my staff. I want them to I know this sounds cliche, when I'm retired out of this game, I want to be able to look at you know, a TV show and see their name in the credits, executive producer, or this is their production company. That would bring me great joy. Now that will mean I'm old because I'm out of the game, but I don't want to be a career energy vampire, which it seems sometimes there are many. What do you think you are like to disagree with like as the boss? What is it like to disagree with Tamron Hall? Probably scary, because I'm certain. I'm certain about a lot of things because the show is my vision. Listen, I could not pull this show off without Candy Carter, Kristen Graham, my producers. I would be at home doing a show on my iPhone, and it would not be very good. It's one thing for me to walk through the room and say, yeah, it's my show. It's a whole nother thing to pull that show off. But creatively, you know, I'm sure it is intimidating. I've been intimidated going into the newsroom where there's a news director, but it's different because it's the Tamron Hall show. But what I hope that they feel is the loyalty that I have to them. I have had the same best friend since the age of four who I just got off the phone with before I talked to you. I talk to my agent all day, every day. I don't like that term. I pride myself on being loyal because that sounds a little jerky, but I... Do. I, am, I am the girlfriend you call at 4 a.m. when you've caught him cheating, and I might drive by his house to knock on the door. I pride myself in being that person. And so I want every day for my team, especially the younger people on the team, to know that I will go through the fire with them. Now, I might not go before, but I will go with you holding your hand, and I tell them that as much as I possibly can because of that early experience that I reference of being a young journalist in the business and having this woman of power come in. And did you ever see that woman again? She got fired. So I don't know. (laughs) I'm not laughing because she got fired because I've been fired too. I'm not laughing. I'm just saying life has a funny way of working things out.
1: Before we wrap up, I do want to talk about the baby who's not so much a
0: baby anymore. He's, you said 18 months? 19 months now. Uh, He said puppy today for the first time.
1: You were very, very open about your fertility journey. I think that that is something, you know, we're seeing change really in just the last two years or so, more and more people just being open about what they go through and whether that's Chrissy Teigen or whether that's someone like you, like really sharing that it's not just an easy, easy ride to, to create a family, whatever that looks like for somebody if they choose that path. For those that are listening, that whatever they might be going through and, and also dealing with kind of putting on a game face at work, what is your piece of advice?
0: Oh my gosh, it's such a big question because they are it's layered. Listen, the pivot is real. I say all the time, it will come in some form. You're going to either be replaced or you're gonna lose the job, someone's going to, you know, hopscotch over you. Unless you start the company, keep the company. And make money your whole life, at some point you're going to work for someone. And the pivot will become real. I always tell people in business, you're going to quit them or they're going to quit you. Are you ready? I apply that to relationships. I apply that to my journey through IVF. The pivot was real. I was on my way home after several failed rounds and just kind of feeling like this is not going to happen. I saw a sign and this is the true story is a sign. It said, um, black adoption. And I was like, whoa. And I came home to my husband. I said that I saw, I literally saw the sign. It wasn't a sign. The sign was right there. And I was, am and was always open to adoption. It wasn't as if it wasn't, you know, right at the top. And then I don't know, cause it's a blur at this point, but maybe a day later, we learned that the round had taken. Wow. And when you go through IVF, just because it takes, it's like 10 days later, it's a whole process. It's not just magically, but it was, the pivot was real and I was ready for it. I knew that this might not be the way forward up until he came out of my body. I didn't know how this was going to play out. So I just recognize and my advice is don't be afraid of the pivot. You have got to embrace it. And I wasn't always ready for it. I mean, the idea that I would lose a job, what? No, I'm working my tail off. I'm keeping my head down. I'm doing the work. This is not supposed to happen. What? I'm in this relationship with this guy. I'm doing everything right. He should be lucky to have me, and he's cheating on me? What? You know, our friendships. This person's not good for me. We are not helping each other's journey. Every time I call him or her, they are bringing me down, not just in that friend talk us through, talk us off the ledge down. They're toxic. The pivot is real. And so for me, that's the advice. You can't be afraid of losing it. Be afraid of not being prepared to lose it. I love that advice. We are going to move to our lightning round. Are you
1: ready? Yes. Okay. Morning person or night owl? Morning Last time you negotiated for yourself? Yesterday. What'd you negotiate?
0: A cosmetic deal. Ooh.
1: I asked our Instagram followers what they wanted me to ask you,
0: and somebody said, what is your favorite interview? I don't have a favorite. One of the most intimidating was Winnie Mandela. Years ago, right after she'd ended her marriage with Nelson Mandela, and, I mean, for someone of my generation, you know, Winnie Mandela, it's just, uh, And it was terrifying, because I thought there was nothing smart enough I could ask her. Who is somebody that you want to interview that you haven't? No one. I want what's bent for me.
1: What is your favorite pair of shoes? You're known to have a great shoe collection, as you said.
0: Favorite pair of shoes. Currently, I'm going to look behind me. and. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, actually, my favorite pair of shoes right now Oh, these. These are the Golden Goose. They are so comfortable, and I was resistant because they look like they've been worn, and that's just counter to how I was raised. But I I liken it to the distressed jeans thing. But they're my favorite because they're all soft and cushy, and I can wear them, and they still look cute with a cute dress.
1: They're very cute. I love them. Okay, (laughs) my my team put this together, and I'm going to ask it. You're a big fan of the movie Rocky. What is your favorite line from the movie?
0: Oh, my gosh. That's a tough one because I have so many. My favorite? My latest favorite actually comes from the latest Rocky. And he said, because he's sick in the scene and I guess maybe I'm a certain age and you start thinking this way. And he said, death is the only undefeated champion. And I thought, you know what? That means I can take on anything because the only thing you can't defeat is death. And I thought that was very powerful.
1: That is powerful. That is a good way to end this show. I have nothing to say after that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Okay, Tamarin, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Carly. Hi, everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we wanna take a moment to spotlight some new female founded companies. We've heard from many
2: incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. My name is Monica Ostlander Moreno and I am a registered dietitian and owner of Essence Nutrition in Miami, Florida. Essence Nutrition is a group practice of now eight registered dietitians who basically operate under a very exciting and rather sensational um, practice philosophy that gives clients the right to pursue health in ways that are joyous and meaningful to them. I started incubating the idea um, in actually early twenty fifteen, and you know people nowadays I think think oh I'm going to start a private practice. Let me start an Instagram, and then I'm in private practice. It took a full year. To really hatch it and, and, you know, like I said, incubate it from the business plan to the website and the design and the structure and the legal things. And originally I had had a partner and then I didn't. And, you know, so that was year one was really a planning stage for me. And I was working full time at the time, but I still don't really support doing it overnight. get organized and organize your thoughts on paper, on a computer, and discuss them with someone who has done it before, maybe in a similar, analogous, or even identical industry. So now I actually have a dietitian consulting service where I coach other dietitians about starting their business because. It's quite mysterious to us as clinicians on how to start a private practice. That's not something you learn mostly in the graduate school curriculum. So, um, you know, I would I would encourage you to find a mentor and get organized and approach your your vision as why you're unhappy right now and what your ideal day would look like in your ideal. You know, entrepreneurial career. Find me in the cyber cloud on Instagram at E like Monica, and our website is essencenutritionmiami.com. And um, we are really doing virtual visits right now, mostly. We do have office space um, scattered across Miami, but you can get in touch with us at hello at essencenutritionmiami.com. Thanks
1: for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all of the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.